We'll hear argument this morning in Case 06-1195, Buma Dien v. Bush, and Case 06-1196, El Oda v. United States. Mr. Waxman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The petitioners in these cases have three things in common. First, all have been confined at Guantanamo for almost six years, yet not one has ever had meaningful notice of the factual grounds of detention or a fair opportunity to dispute those grounds before a neutral decision-maker. Two, under the decision below, they have no prospect of getting that opportunity. And three, each maintains, as this Court explained in Rasul, that he is, quote, innocent of all wrongdoing. Now, the government contends that these men are detainable, and the facts of these 37 cases differ, and it may well be that an adjudicatory process that preserves the core features of common law habeas would reveal, perhaps, that some of these petitioners are lawfully detainable. But limited DTA review of the structurally flawed CSRT process cannot provide any reliable examination of the executive's asserted basis for detaining these petitioners, let alone an adequate substitute for traditional habeas review. I thought we ruled in the Hamdi case that procedures quite similar to those under the DTA were adequate for American citizens. Well, uh, with respect, Mr. Chief Justice, what you ruled, as I understand what the plurality held in Hamdi was, that so long as there was a process accompanying detention that provided for meaningful notice of the factual grounds for detention, a meaningful opportunity to present evidence in response to that before a neutral tribunal with the assistance of counsel, that determination would certainly be entitled to substantial deference by a habeas court, and we don't dispute that. So but that's not what this, they got. So our judgment in this case depends upon whether we agree with you or the government that the procedures available under the DTA are meaningful under Hamdi? It I think your decision in this case, the, 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 quest, the principal question we think is presented by the case is whether or not the DTA review of the CSRT procedures that occurred in this case adequately substitute for the writ of habeas corpus. Mr. Waxman, you could, how could that be? Because the D.C. Circuit never got to that question. The D.C. Circuit, as I understand it, ruled that there was no access to habeas end of case. So the D.C. Circuit never examined the procedure under the DTA, did it? No. The, D- the, the, district co- the two district judges sitting in habeas went to the merits of the case, and Judge Green did evaluate the procedures. The D.C. Circuit held that the Constitution, neither the suspension clause nor the due process clause, applies to these people, and therefore it didn't reach the merits. But but so, so shouldn't we, if we agree with you, that there is authority in the district in the in the DC circuit send it back to them to make that determination whether habeas being required this was an adequate substitute well i i'm not saying that the court this court couldn't do that it certainly could do that but one of the principal the principal guarantee of habeas corpus through the centuries has been a speedy, the remedy of speedy release for somebody who is unlawfully being held in executive detention. These 37 men have been held 
in isolation for six years, and it is manifest on the record in this case. There's no doubt about how the CSRTs proceeded. There is little doubt about the circumscribed nature of the D.C. Circuit's review. The D.C. Circuit has already held that the Constitution doesn't apply. Your argument wouldn't be any different with respect to the availability of habeas if these people were held for one day, would it? We don't look at the length of detention in deciding whether habeas is available, do we? Well, I, I, I want to give a qualified disagreement with your hypothetical, because it's entirely clear that um, as I think members of this Court have indicated and that habeas traditionally indicated that there may be military exigencies, there may be a limited time period in which it is inappropriate for a habeas court to rule. And moreover, well, if I there just are — Well, you there. Uh, do you want this Court to rule on whether or not there are military exigencies that require the holding and detention of these uh, enemy combatants? No, what I, what I was — Enemy combatants. What I was referring to were — you know, the sort of the hypothetical of battlefield. Somebody is captured, you know, and the next day or the next week from the battlefield, does he or she have the right to uh, — is, does a habeas court have constitutional jurisdiction? We're not putting aside, that, but can putting I — aside the battlefield hypothetical, we're talking about Guantanamo. Your argument is that somebody held one day in Guantanamo has the right to habeas. So the extent of detention is irrelevant to well, your assertion. I, I don't think so. With respect, I think — I, I don't think it, it, I think it is appropriate for a habeas if, if the executive says we have detained this person, we believe this person is an enemy combatant who may be lawfully detained under the AUMF. We have an administrative process that is fair, that will, that will determine the facts. You should stay your hand to allow that procedure to occur. Of course, that is appropriate so long as the procedure is meaningful and speedy. That's what we do in immigration your ba- your cases. Your basic position has to rest on Guantanamo Bay being just like if we had the detainees in, say, the Everglades. But do you, you concede that if these people had never been brought to the United States, if the facility were in, say, Germany, that these detainees would have no access to habeas, no access to our courts? I wouldn't agree with that. I would for two reasons. First of all, I think these people are in a place that is even — that is under even more complete control and jurisdiction of our national executive than they would be in the Everglades, because there are no federalism constraints here. Our national government supplies the only law. As if they were detained in Germany, the question would be, A, are they being detained by the United States or by some multinational coalition force, as was the case, for example, in Hirota? B, are there other laws? Can they invoke the jurisdiction of another court? And the answer to that question would depend upon the tech, the terms of our status of force. says that? Let, let, let's consider first the, the basis on which the Court of Appeals decided this case. They decided it. In Rasul, we, we had held that the habeas statute extended to Guantanamo and that those, uh, those people who had filed their suits before the statute, at least, uh, could, could bring a suit. Congress acted and enacted a new habeas statute which makes it very clear that the habeas statute, at least, does not apply to these people in, in, in Guantanamo. Your, your assertion here is that there is a common law, constitutional, 
right of habeas corpus that does not depend upon any statute. Do, do, do you have a single case in the 220 years of our, of our country, or for that matter, in the 500, the five centuries of, uh, of, of, of uh, uh, the English Empire, in which habeas was granted to an alien in a territory that was not under the, the sovereign control of either the United States or England? The answer to that is a resounding yes. What is, what they is are the cases that were discussed and cited by the majority opinion in Rasul, and we have we have added other ones to them. But in what, short, what case, they, what, what case in particular do you think in Rasul? Uh, I think the the opinion of two of the three law lords in the Earl of Crewe, which the majority cited as in sec gome. It is certain the government concedes it was the case in in Remwenya. It was true in the Indian cases. And, in fact, as we point out in Wenya, a Wenya involved an English, an English subject, not the, an alien. Indeed it the did. And is an alien. Indeed it did. And the government — Oh, it's totally irrelevant. Well, no — let me take a shot at convincing you that it's not totally irrelevant. The Crown Council in that case, in his brief — stated forthrightly that subjecthood or citizenship didn't matter, and in fact, in the very minority opinion that the government relies on in its brief here in Earl of Crewe, Lord Justice Kennedy specifically said that the citizenship is irrelevant. It isn't and in wasn't In both of those cases, it was a citizen, nonetheless. In 220 years of our history, or five centuries of the Brit, do you have a single case in which it was not a citizen of England or a citizen of the United States in which a common law writ of habeas corpus issued to a, a, a piece of land that was not within the sovereign jurisdiction? Well, the, the court majority in Rasul cites a case involving the Isle of Jersey, the Channel Islands. None of those were within the sovereign courts. They, 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 they were not uh, uh, regarded as part of the Crown's dominion, but they were part of the Crown's sovereign territory. I'll take one more chance, Justice Scalia, well, and then maybe we'll we I mean, line them up. I, here, okay. <laughs> here they go. In the Indian cases, I mean, first of all, let's say that citizenship was not a notion at common law. The question was subjecthood, and subjecthood was a very ill-defined term that had no fixed uh, parameters, as our reply brief points out. Certainly, many of the petitioners in the Indian cases that we cited, and in fact that Sir John Chambers decided, were not Englishmen or people who would have been otherwise considered. And the cases were decided under a statute that applied in India, not under the under the common law. And and the writ did not come from England. The writ came from English courts in India under a statute. Well, we decided that in Rasul. I mean, you want to do that in Rasul, that's fine. Well, but I'm, you are appealing to a common law right that, that somehow found its way into our Constitution without, as far as I can discern, a single case in which the writ ever issued to, to, to a, non, a non-citizen. Justice Scalia, as Lord Mansfield explained in The King versus Cowell, and both sides are citing to it, even if the writ even with respect to the persons detained outside the English realm, the relevant question was, is this person under the subjection of the crown? 
not what is the subjecthood or citizenship of this person. What and in fact — What is the relevance to your — this line of reasoning to the recent enactment by Congress of Section 1005G, which says that the basic Guantanamo is not part of the United States? There's a judgment by the political branches that we don't exercise sovereignty over the, the leasehold. And it seems to me that if we're going to adhere to our — habeas corpus cases, we would have to uh, reject that determination. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, let me answer that question directly, and then, if I may, finish my answer to Justice Scalia. We don't contend that the United States exercises sovereignty over Guantanamo Bay. Our contention is that at common law, sovereignty, A, wasn't the test, as Lord Mansfield explained, and B, wasn't a clear-cut determined — there weren't clear-cut sovereignty lines in those days. Our case doesn't depend on sovereignty. It depends on the fact that, among other things, the United States exercises, quote, complete jurisdiction and control over this base. No other law applies. If our law doesn't apply, it is a law-free zone. So, so now, Justice answer Scalia, to Justice Ginsburg's question, it wouldn't matter where these detainees were held, so long as they're under, under U.S. control, if they were held uh, on a U.S. military base pursuant to a standard treaty with another country, if they were in Afghanistan or in Iraq, the, the result would be the same. No, I think, Justice Alito, I, I want to be as clear about this as I can be. This is a particularly easy, straightforward case. But in another place, jurisdiction would depend on the facts and circumstances, including the nature of an agreement with the resident sovereign over who exercises control. And I want to come back to that with the Japan and German example, because I have read the status of forces agreements there. Secondly, even if there technically were jurisdiction, there might very well be justiciability issues under the circumstances of the sort that Justice Kennedy addressed in his concurrence in Rasul. That is, there may be circumstances and temporal conditions in which, under the separation of powers, it would be a court would deem it inappropriate to exercise that jurisdiction. And finally, even if it were appropriate to exercise the jurisdiction, the review of a habeas court in the mine run of cases would be anything but plenary because members of enemy armed forces and enemy aliens within the meaning of the, the Alien Enemy Act are detainable, period. Now, what with respect a, what to — can a future war, uh, many of the uh, soldiers in the opposing army don't wear uniforms? What if it's a war like Vietnam and thousands of prisoners are taken uh, into custody and they are brought to — prisoner of war camps in the United States, as occurred during World War II, every one of them, under your theory, could file a habeas petition. Well, if they were in the United States, I think it's clear that they could file habeas petitions. And, you know, the question about how Guantanamo relates to that is for this Court. What's, what's material is that one — I mean, we cited to the Court the, the, the Army directives and the Army procedures implementing Article 5 of the Geneva Conventions that were used in Vietnam, which is the only other war we engaged in that had combatants who weren't in uniforms. They not only had a hearing that was near the time and near the place of capture, 
and the right to call witnesses. There's no evidence that classified information was withheld from them, and they not only had a right to counsel, the government provided them counsel, somebody who was their advocate. Now, once a determination like that is made, they may, if they're detained in the United States, they may file a habeas petition, and the response will be, there is absolutely no reason not to defer to the adjudication of that tribunal. You had, as I started with the Chief Justice, you had a fair notice of the facts, a fair opportunity to challenge them with the assistance of counsel before a neutral decision-maker. So to determine whether there's jurisdiction, in every case we have to go through a multi-factor analysis to determine if the United States exercises not sovereignty, which you've rejected as the touchstone, but sufficient control uh, uh, over a particular military base, over the, the Philippines during World War II uh, in, in Vietnam, and, and it's going to decide in some cases whether the control is sufficient and others whether it isn't. Well, I don't. And that is a judgment we, the court, would make, not the political branches who have to deal with the competing sovereignties in those situations. You know, I think, I don't think it's, I, it, both sides try to derive force from the fact that such claims, such habeas petitions haven't come forward in floods in the past. And I think the reason is that in the past, we had combat in which, you know, I mean, in a, in a, in a war of the conventional sort, soldiers wear uniforms, and more to the point, the interests of the captured soldier and the command and the capturing officer are aligned. The, cap- the, the captured soldier wants to be treated as a prisoner of war or released. The commanding general wants to release civilians who aren't in the army or turn them over for criminal prosecution. That's why in the Gulf War, there were 1,200, roughly, it's just a few under 1,200 Article 5 field tribunal hearings that were held, of which almost 900 were released as civilian noncombatants, and we the had, remaining were detained. We, Council, we had 400,000, 400,000 German prisoners in this country during World War II, and not a you say it's clear in, in the Vietnam example that, uh, that the Chief Justice gave you, that it's clear that habeas would lie. 400,000 of these people, it never occurred to them. Well, first of all, there and, is Cole Paw and, and many Torpedo. of them were civilians, by the way, and not, not in uniform. There, not a single habeas petition filed. There, is, there are Cole Paw, the Tenth Circuit case, and In Ray Torito, both of which we discuss. But more to the point, as I said, Justice Scalia, there is no doubt that a member of the German army or somebody who is assisting the German army, it would be totally unavailing to file a cert peti- to file a habeas petition because they are detainable. It would be like Mr. Lud- Ludicky in the United States versus Ludicky saying he wasn't assisting the German army, just as these people here claim that they were not attacking you. And they were provided Article Five tribunals that gave them actual notice of the government's facts, an actual opportunity to controvert it, and a determination by military officers who had not been told that both the commanding general of the Southern Command and the Secretary of Defense had personally reviewed the evidence and determined that these were enemy combatants. And a habeas court would simply dismiss. And a habeas court could simply say, whether we do or don't technically have jurisdiction under battlefield circumstances or circumstances involving foreign detainees in a, in an, in a zone of occupation where active hostilities occur, it 
is inappropriate under the separation of powers for us to intervene. But these men have been held, taken by the United States, thousands of miles away, in the case of my six individuals, plucked from their home, from their wives and children in Sarajevo, detained for three months at the United States' request. And your primary position is that we should order that they be released. Is that correct? Well, we've asked that they be granted habeas relief. We think that what that means is that they should be — the cases should be returned to the district courts where their cases are proceeding. The government has filed its factual returns to the writ. Judge Green, in the cases pending before her, has established procedures to protect the Suppose there had not been a six-year six wait. Um, would it be appropriate then for us to, if you prevail, uh, remand the case uh, to the habeas court and instruct the habeas court to defer until the uh, Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia has finished the DTA review proceedings? I would argue that the answer is no for two reasons. One, because there is no prospect, no prospect, that the DTA proceedings will be conducted with alacrity or certainty. And second of all, because well, why, unless why should, why should I assume that the court of uh, the, the district court in Washington would be uh, any faster than the court of appeal? Well, let's here's the the. the the, the district — let's take the cases in front of Judge Green. Judge Leon, in one of the — in the cases of my clients, just granted the government's motion to dismiss. But the, in all of the cases, the government has filed its factual return under the procedures — under the long-established habeas procedures under 2243. It is — the burden is now on us. She, she has already ruled that with respect to secret information or classified information, here are the safeguards that will govern. Here's how we'll work. And it is simply on us now to adduce and present evidence to try and over — to try and shoulder the burden we have. In the Court of Appeals, Justice Kennedy, the government, after two years, has not produced the record on review in a single case. It is now said — two years — it is now said that it cannot do so. And the Court of Appeals has suggested that what the government ought to do is hold entirely new CSRT proceedings. Now, those proceedings are structurally flawed. Perhaps this Court could say, look, here's how it's going to be. First of all, the Constitution does apply. Second of all, we have to have a, a hearing in which the following things occur. We either in the Court of Appeals under the All Writs Act or under 28 U.S.C. Section 2347C, the petitioners have to have the right to adduce and present evidence to controvert the government's return, which was mo almost all of the government's evidence was introduced ex parte in camera and with a to boot with a presumption that it is accurate and genuine. Why, why can't that take place in the CSRT review proceedings that are pending? Well, I don't — I — it could if this — if the military had different procedures to govern the CSRTs. And our submission is that with respect to these petitioners, you've asked, you know, to hold aside the six years. I would say with respect to future detainees that this Court could issue a ruling that — what this Court should issue a ruling saying — for these people, if the writ means anything, 
the time for experimentation is over. We have tried and true established procedures. We've got experienced district judges, including a judge who was the chief judge of the FISA court, who's already established the rules for maintaining confidentiality of classified information. But we are not, as a court, saying that there could not readily be an adequate substitute if the administrative procedures generated by the Department of Defense allowed for the, the process minimums that the Chief Justice asked me about at the beginning well, and explicated that, a standard that was authorized, a substantive standard authorized by the AUMF, DTA review may very well be an adequate substitute. Is, is that possible for your, let's say, your six clients at this point, because, or, or for any of the Guantanamo detainees, I guess? Because wouldn't they all run into the, the, the problem of the neutrality problem that you raise? The commanding general, the secretary of defense, in effect, has already said these people belong where they are. Wouldn't, wouldn't that make it impossible, really, at this stage of the game, to substitute a, a military procedure? I certainly think so. But at a minimum, Justice Souter, you would have to have the kind of tribunal that is called for under the Uniform Code I, I of Military Justice, where you don't have the convening authority exercising command control over the, the, the tribunal right. officers. No, I, I'm just wondering whether, assuming you win this case, that would be an appropriate form of, of relief, and I'm not sure. I, I don't think it is, and I certainly don't think it would be, unless this Court clarified that under the — I don't know whether this would fall in the guise of clarification — but specify that under the circumstances, the deferential review of the D.C. Circuit in which it presumes accurate and presumes sufficient adequate the evidence which the tribunal itself presumed accurate would have to fall. That is, a habeas court would never accord that presumption. May, may I? I have oh. a question. I don't want to interfere with this. No, we'll, we'll give you a rebuttal time. Uh, going back to Justice Scalia's question on the precedent, uh, supposed, and I'm, I'm, I'm want to be clear, I'd like my mind to be clear on this. I, I thought that the question asked was for you to find an, an instance where, uh, there was no sovereignty of the country and, and, uh, they issued the writ. Uh, and it was turning on a technical thing, whether that was how the question was met or not. What I've read here in, in these different briefs is in 1759, uh, Lord Mansfield, the case can issue a writ of habeas corpus. No doubt the power could issue it where the place is under the subjection of the Crown of England. Then Lord Sellers in Mwenyina says subjection is uh, fully appropriate to the powers, that's habeas, irrespective of territorial sovereignty or dominion, in other words, non-technical, then our case in Rasul, both the concurring opinion and the majority opinion, say things like the reach of the writ depends not on formal notions of territorial sovereignty, but on the practical questions, and then they both list practical questions. Now, suppose we take that as the definition. Now, can you find instances where the writ has been issued by Britain uh, in history uh, to people who were not citizens uh, and who were not actually held in Britain. Yes. I'll they cite, are, I mean, I'll I'll cite two, two examples. I, I knew that there was one other thing I wanted to try on Justice Scalia. 
One is, and it's referenced in our footnote, you know, in 1777 and 1783, Parliament suspended the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus for people on the high seas or out of the realm, specifically directed at U.S. seamen, at, at American seamen. And if the writ never extended to American seamen on the high seas or out of the realm, there would have been no point in suspending it. Second of all, the, the, com- the, the high court judges who were administering, issuing the writ for the benefit of detainees in India before it became a sovereign possession, were not exercising a statutory authority, with all due respect to Justice Scalia. There was a royal charter that granted those judges the, all of the, com- the authority, common law authorities of the Queen's bench. And as the, ca- the Indian case law explicates and Sir John Chambers explains, one of those authorities was the exercise of the writ of habeas corpus, not mandamus, outside to territories that were no part of the realm of England. Those are the, I think, I mean, I, there may be something in our have the Spanish the doctor, historians. The Spanish doctor, the Swedish doctor, the Spanish sailors, the British spy, they're all in these. Well, in this, in this country, in Ray Vallado, which was decided only a few years after the founding, not only was he an enemy alien, he was granted release under the writ of habeas corpus because, not being a citizen, he could not be charged with treason, which was the basis for holding Where, him. where was he held? I think in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I, maybe it was these New Jersey. Being held in the Mid-Atlantic. Excuse me? I mean, he's being held within the jurisdiction of the United States. I am still waiting for a single case, other than the Indian case, which you mentioned, which, which was under a statute. Uh, a single case in which an alien that in, in, a, in a territory not within the crown was granted habeas corpus. And it's not enough to say there was a statute that applied on the seas. That's fine. Just give me one case. There's not a single one in all of this lengthy history. Well, Justice Scalia, you're asking me to discard the Indian cases. And I've, I've mentioned to you the cases that the majority opinion in Rasul relied on, the Earl of Crewe and Muenya. I've given you the two statutes. I think at this point I have to plead exhaustion of remedies. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Waxman, I, this determination, whether it's sovereignty or subjugation or control of, uh, of non-sovereign territory, uh, would I expect have diplomatic consequences? It is, I think, typically an act of war for one country to assert authority and control over another country's jurisdiction. Uh, here we have Section 1005G, where Congress and the President have agreed that Guantanamo Bay is not part of the United States, and yet you would have this Court issue a ruling saying that it's subject to the total complete domination and control or whatever the factors are. What is the reaction of the Cuban government to be to that? My understand. I don't think it's in the record here, but oh, what is in the record are the terms of the lease, and I don't really take it to be disputed that Guantanamo is under the complete, utterly exclusive jurisdiction and control of the national government of the United States. That's in the, the lease itself. The courts of Cuba have so held. They have designated Guantanamo, quote, foreign territory, unless and until the United States, in its sole 
discretion chooses to vacate the base. We, there and, there and, are uh, — am I wrong that there are Cuban workers who come onto the base and work? I'm not sure whether there are or not any longer. But unlike for — if you take — they are not subject, and it has never been contended that they are subject to Cuban control with respect to conduct that is subject to any so law of the United two, States. if you have two of those workers and they get into a fight over something, uh, one can't sue the other in Cuban courts? Absolutely not. And this is the key difference, I think, going to Justice Alito's question. Under but our what status authority, of — What authority do you have for that, that such a suit would not lie in a Cuban court? Well, first of all, the terms of the lease, and second of all, I believe — I don't know that we've cited — I mean, there's so many — somebody has cited decisions of the Cuban government, the judiciary and its executive, that they don't exercise any jurisdiction. Uh, the converse out. question is, could we prosecute a crime committed on Guantanamo in Guantanamo by, by Cubans? And the answer is yes. The answer is certainly yes. And if I can just uh, make the, the point about, about — Bases elsewhere, in Germany and Japan, for example, the status of — this is the only base, I believe, that, you know, in something other than a, an active war zone that isn't the subject of a status of forces agreement that very specifically explicates both the judicial and executive authority over acts that occur on the base. And, for example, under our status of forces agreement with Japan, it is entirely clear that if it is a Japanese citizen — or a Japanese national, or, or conduct that is subject to the laws of Japan, the Japanese courts have jurisdiction. You're not heartened by the prospect that the detainees could apply to the Cuban courts, which would then have process to the commanding general of Guantanamo? Not particular. Let's put it that It has not occurred to us yet. I mean, the, this, is in, this is in many respects a uniquely straightforward case. I mean, I really didn't mean to be facetious when I said our national control over Guantanamo is greater than it is over a place in Kentucky. Because there we have, under our system of federalism, the federal government has limited controls. I thought this was decided in Rasul. That's why I'm so puzzled by the government's position. I think Justice Kennedy said it most clearly when he said that, well, in every practical respect, Guantanamo Bay is U.S. territory. And whatever Congress recently passed, they can't, as you pointed out, change the terms of the lease. Yes, I think that's right. And I, I also think that although it is correct, as Justice Scalia pointed out at the outset, that the decision in Rasul was a decision about the scope of 2241, which has now been amended, and the majority at least uh, rendered a decision on the basis of the statute, nonetheless, the Court was construing 2241C1, which is in heck verba, with Section 14 of the 1789 Act. There are other provisions of the habeas statute, like the Civil War provisions that under which this Court reviews state court convictions and deten detentions. But the statute that this Court was construing in Rasul was identical in language to the one promulgated in the, the very first Judiciary Act of 1789, which this Court has said in Bowman was an instantiation, a positive enactment of the writ that was protected by the Constitution. And so while technically 
the court, the majority was issuing a statutory ruling, and we don't contend otherwise, inferentially its conclusion must extend to the, the extent of the writ at, at common law. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Waxman. We will give you five minutes for rebuttal. General Clement. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, since this Court's decision in Rasul, petitioner's status has been reviewed by a tribunal modeled on Army Regulation 190-8, and Congress has passed two statutes addressing petitioner's rights. Petitioners now have access to the Article III courts and have a right to judicial review in the D.C. Circuit. That review encompasses preponderance claims, claims that the military did not follow their own regulations, and statutory and constitutional claims. General Clement, we said it was modeled after 190.8. Is it identical to 190.8? Justice Stevens, it's virtually identical. If you look at pages 50 and 51 of our brief, you'll see kind of a side-by-side comparison. And the deviations are ones that we would submit enhance the rights of the detainees in this particular circumstance. So they are given a right to a personal representative, which is not something that Army Regulation 190-8 provides. They're specifically provided for the ability to submit documentary evidence. How is that personal representative chosen? The personal representative is assigned to the individual by the military. Isn't that personal representative also under an obligation to report back to the military anything that might be unfavorable to the person he is supposedly representing? Well, I don't know about unfavorable, but I think if there's — certainly if there's material intelligence information, he is to provide that information. So he's not in the position of counsel as we understand the term. No, we're not trying to make the point that the personal representative is a counsel. We're just saying it's something that's provided above and beyond 190-8 in terms of the procedure. And there are other particulars as well, like there is the notice of the charges in the unclassified summaries that are provided. Now, there's the complaint on the other side that the unclassified summaries aren't particular enough, but it's worth noting that that's something that's provided here that's not specified by 190-8. Under 190.8, does the defendant have a right to counsel? No, they do not, not under the basic regulations of that. Now, Mr. Waxman correctly indicated that in a particular instance in Vietnam, counsel was provided in 190-8 proceedings, but that they're not provided by the basic 198 procedures. And I think it's worth noting that the DTA is unclear to me anyway on this question. You agree that there is the authority under the DTA, and I assume under the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in reviewing those determinations to order release? Well, the way I would answer that, Mr. Chief Justice, is this. In terms, the DTA does not provide for an order of release. And we would certainly have taken the position that as a first order, if the D.C. Circuit finds a defect in the CSERT, we think the proper remedy would be to order a remand for a new CSERT. But certainly, if this Court thinks that the constitutional line is — essentially necessitates that the D.C. Circuit have the authority to order release, there's no obstacle to that. 2243 doesn't specify the availability of release either, but it has certainly been interpreted to authorize that by habeas courts in this country. No. And the D.C. Circuit would have available to it the All Writs Act 
And the D.C. Circuit, in fact, in its Bismula decision, which is the decision where the government's filed an en banc petition, that protective order that was issued there was done pursuant to the All Writs Act. Yeah, so the D.C. Circuit hasn't been shy about asserting that authority. And again, if that's what was required here, they could use that authority to order release. But doesn't the resort to the All Writs Act beg the question? And that is, I mean, the All Writs Act uh, is there to protect jurisdiction. And the question is whether there is jurisdiction to release. And you say there is no textual impediment to it. And yet we know, I forget which brief it was in from uh, one of the briefs, the, 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 uh, the instance of, of uh, uh, the, the prisoner Ali, one of the Chinese, is it Uyghurs? Is that how it's Uyghurs. Uh, uh, who was one of, what, 12 or 13 who was found not to be an enemy combatant, and the government's uh, position there was go back and do it again in front of another tribune, another, another panel, which in fact conveniently found that, that he was. So, the, the, the practice of the government, it seems to me, has clearly been to deny the right to release. Well, I would disagree, Justice Souter. Let me say a couple of things to that. One is that I think with respect to the Uyghurs in particular, there, there was a problem with ordering release outright. And it's interesting that when Judge Robertson, who's the same judge, district court judge who decided the Hamden case, had before him one of the Uyghurs in a habeas petition, he recognized that under habeas he couldn't order release. And the problem wasn't any kind of inherent limitation on what he could order or his jurisdiction. There was just a practical problem, which okay, was — Okay, there was a practical problem. But the, the fact is that the effectiveness of habeas jurisdiction, for example, in requiring new trials and so on, depends upon the ultimate sanction, which is the authority of the Court to let somebody go if the government doesn't comply with a condition. And, and the, the government practice so far under the DTA — uh, seems quite contrary to that. Well, again, Justice Souter, what I would say is simply this, that if what the Constitution requires to make the DTA to be an adequate substitute is the power to order release, there is no obstacle in the text of the DTA to that, and the All Writs Act is available to allow them to order release to protect their jurisdiction under the DTA. And I think that would be a solution to that problem. Now, I think more broadly, uh, let, me, let me say about the, the DTA and the MCA, it really does represent the best efforts of the political branches, both political branches, to try to balance the interest in providing the detainees in this admittedly unique situation additional process they with the imperative to, 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 to successfully prosecute the global war on terror. They get additional process. The question, I guess, is whether it's an adequate substitute for having withdrawn the writ of habeas corpus. On that question, suppose that you are from Bosnia and you are held for six years in Guantanamo and the charge is that you helped al-Qaeda and you've had your hearing uh, before the CSRT and now you go to the D.C. Circuit and here's what you say. The CSRT is all wrong, the procedures are terrible, but judge, for purposes of argument, I concede their procedures are wonderful. And I also conclude it reached a perfectly good result. Okay? So you concede it for argument's sake. But what you want to say is, Judge, I don't care how good those procedures are. I'm from Bosnia. I've been here six years. The Constitution of the United States does not give anyone the right to hold me six years in Guantanamo without either charging me or releasing me in the absence of some special procedure in Congress for preventive detention. That's the argument I want to make. I don't see anything in this CSRT provision that permits me to make that argument. So I'm asking you, where can you make that argument? 
I'm not sure that he can make that argument, exactly. Justice Breyer. I'm not cannot sure he can make, make that it. argument. How does this become an equivalent to habeas, since that happens to be the argument that a large number of these 305 people would like to make? Well, Justice Breyer, let me take it this way, which is, of course, you're getting to the gravamen of their claim, which is that the DTA and the review provided in the D.C. Circuit is not an adequate substitute for habeas review. And I'll start with the assumption for a second, which I hope is right, because it seems that Judge Friendly reached this conclusion, and it seems to me the right conclusion, which is that the baseline is 1789. And if you compare what these detainees have under the DTA in terms of judicial review to what would have been available to them at common law in 1789, it is not even close. This is a remarkable liberalization of the writ, not some retrenchment or suspension of the writ. These detainees at common law would face not one, but three obstacles to getting into court to make these claims. The first, of course, is the geographical limits on the reach of the writ. The second, but equally important, is the line of authority that says that the writ was simply unavailable to prisoners of war. And the third problem would be the well-established common law rule that you can't controvert the facts as set forth in the return. So at common law, somebody who took the incredibly, I think, poor strategic call to concede all of their legal arguments away and say only, I have a constitutional claim here to be brought, I don't think they would have got into court with that. But aren't you simply re-arguing, Rasul? Not at all. We, we have passed that point, haven't we? Not at all, Justice Souter. And first of all, I mean, I, I, I take it your, your, the principal objection goes to the ge- geographical writ point, because I think the, the issues about controverting the facts of the return and the availability of the writs to prisoners of war is something that really wasn't had any reason to be before this Court in Rasul. It, 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 it wasn't, and I, I didn't want to get into the prisoner of war point. But if you want to get into it, the problem with your prisoner of war point is the United States is not treating them as prisoners of war. They have not been adjudicated prisoners of war or otherwise under the Third Geneva Convention. And, and that argument on the government's part is entirely circular. And With respect, I, Justice Souter. General Clement, I, I remember in a prior hearing about Guantanamo that the government was taking the position firmly that these detainees were not prisoners of war and therefore were not entitled to the protection of the Geneva Conventions. So if if the government is maintaining that position, these people are not prisoners of war, then the treatment of a prisoner of war is not relevant. Well, with respect, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Souter, because I think it gets to the same point, we're using prisoner of war the way that the common law courts use the term prisoner of war. Hundreds of years. Is the Geneva Convention modeled after the Constitution of the United States? No, what and it means by prisoner of war is the same thing that the Constitution means? Well, and, 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 and with respect, the framers in 1789 had the benefit of the three Spanish soldiers in the Shiver case. They didn't have the benefit of the Geneva Convention. And the three Spanish soldiers were, were ultimately uh, found to be prisoners of war. And yet they had processed to get into court. There was no question of the jurisdiction of an English court to entertain their claim. The writ was denied, Justice Souter. The relief was denied. No, no the writ they was a, denied. They had a hearing under the writ. They did not have a hearing. The writ and was how did the court ever come to the conclusion that, in fact, they were prisoners of war? Because it said that it looked at the pleading in the petition. There was no hearing. It looked at the petition, and it said on their own showing, 
They are prisoners of war. They are denied the right. Right. On their, on their own showing. Uh, but, in fact, uh, the, the proceeding did not end until the Court had come to that conclusion. It was not a conclusion that the Court assumed simply on the basis of a government claim in the return to the writ. They didn't even ask for a return, Justice Souter. I mean, you know, they, they decided On the, the basis case- of a government claim uh, formally or informally proffered to the Court. They, 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 they came to that conclusion, as you said, based on the, on the, on the prisoner's own showing. Uh, but the Court certainly, there is no authority in the prisoner of war case for saying that if the government makes a claim that one is a prisoner of war, contrary to, to, to the government's prior position, incidentally, that that forecloses the possibility of consideration under uh, the, 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 the petition as filed. There is authority for that proposition, Justice Souter. It comes along later in the World War II cases in Britain. The reason there's not authority contemporaneous with the 1759 cases is because these courts are operating with the common law rule that you can't controvert the facts as set forth in a return. So the petitioners in these cases wisely didn't make a factual dispute. They made a legal dispute, and the courts rejected it time and time again I, I thought in Spanish court. sailors and, and the Shiver. It, could I, I, I'd like to just offer you, though, because uh, the 1941 authority, because this question, of course, over time, by, the, by 1941, the British courts have relaxed the, the, the rule against controverting the facts of the return, and they address this question about what kind of factual inquiry is necessary when the, when the government comes back and says that somebody is an enemy combatant, a prisoner of war, or under the Emergency Detention Act of 1939, a threat to the realm. And in two cases, Liver's Ridge against Anderson and Green against Anderson, the law lords in 1941 say that they're not going to look beyond what the government has provided in the return. They're not even in the Green case going to ask for an affidavit. So if you're looking well, at is the that scope because they were reflecting 1789 practice or because they were reflecting the Defense of the Realm Act? I, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a pretty good snapshot of where things were as of 1941. But unless you can answer my question, we don't know what the snapshot proves. They were, they were exercising habeas jurisdiction. They were exercising habeas jurisdiction in a court, in, in a, in a, uh, a polity in which Parliament is supreme and Parliament had already passed the Defense of the Realm Act. And, and I don't, I mean it, I don't know the answer to the question I asked you. But I think unless we have an answer to that, we don't have a, a reliable clue as to the understanding of the English courts at a time that's relevant to our inquiry. I think we do have an answer, Justice Souter, and it's in, it's in the Livers Ridge case, because there there's a question of interpreting the Emergency Detention Act. And they basically have a choice. They can interpret it to allow the detention to turn exclusively on the subjective belief of the Home Secretary, or they can interpret it to, inc- to reflect an objective standard. And they choose, over the dissent of, of, of Lord Atkin, they choose a purely subjective standard. So in interpreting an act of Parliament that could have gone either way, they interpret it under the common law writ to involve no factual inquiry whatsoever. And the case of common law in 1789 is a fortiori from that, because they would not go beyond the facts as set forth in the return. And the only response that petitioners have to that common law rule is they can point to a couple of cases where the courts were tempted and did accede to the temptation to peek beyond the return in the context of a child custody case or other private custody cases. But in this is a situation where — You're here talking about — and I I see that you have a strong argument, and they'll have a strong argument in reply. 
I think both are pretty good, how you interpret these cases. I thought we were talking about what the availability of a forum in which you can make your argument and they can make their argument. And that's why I'm back to the question of is this remedy that's given in the statute sufficient to allow you to make your argument and there to make them their argument. And what you'd said was, when I thought I produced uh, an example of an instance they wanted to argue quite strongly, and you said, no, they couldn't. And you said, well, neither could they in England. Well, that I wonder. That's where I'm back to. After all, England doesn't have a written constitution. So it's hardly surprising if they concede everything away in England They're not going to be able to make any argument. There's nothing left. But let's imagine in England you had a statute, and that statute said the government cannot hold an alien in in Bekwana land for six years without either charging them or releasing them, or except for, and now we have some very detailed preventive detention. Suppose there was a statute like that, and then our friends in England in whatever year, conceded every argument but that one. Now, are you going to tell me now that the habeas courts would have said, we won't even listen to your argument? Well, as, as Justice Souter pointed out, I mean, if you assume that the statute also said, and your review for that claim should be in the Court of Appeals, not in a traditional Correct. And you told me that in this statute, the Court of Appeals will not listen to that argument. And as I read... The the statute, I agree with you, because I can find no place where they could make that argument, since it does not concern how well this tribunal did, nor does it concern the constitutionality of the procedures of the tribunal. Well, Justice Breyer, as I say, I think that if you accept that there would be some deference to the ability to bring statutory claims, I don't know why that deference would be limited to the substance and not to the forum. And Congress here has spoken. It has spoken. The political branches have spoken. They've struck a balance. They've given these detainees better rights and access to administrative and judicial review well, if than court, anyone. Um, if the Court holds that the, DT, the DTA is not an adequate substitute for habeas, what will happen? They, will these petitioners then have access to all of the procedures that normally apply in, in a habeas proceeding under 2241? The same right to discovery, subpoena witness, ac- witnesses, access to classified information, I, presence in court. The government will certainly take the position that they are not entitled to those things. Presumably, the petitioners will be arguing that they are entitled to those things. The answers to those questions will be unclear because the review provided by the DTA and the habeas statute, if it's applied in this context, either way, whatever the vehicle for that judicial review, it will be unprecedented. And there will be difficult questions that will need to be worked out. And I don't understand why. Clement, if we had to ch- either charge or release these people, what, what, what would they be charged with? Waging war against the United States? Is, is, is there a statute that, that prevents non-citizens from waging war against the United States and provides criminal penalties? Not as such, Justice Scalia. Now, of course, we might have an argument as to some of these individuals that they, they engaged in unlawful I practice. understand the government's position. These people are not in uniform, so they're not under the law of war. They have all committed murder, not just uh, fighting a war. That's your theory, I think. They have all committed war crimes. Well, Justice Stevens. Those who are caught on the battlefield, I mean, talk about those. Right, and the ones that actually killed somebody would have committed murder. And I mean, that's and, right. 
and they are not prisoners of war under the, under the law of war because they were not in uniform. They, they don't qualify for prisoner of war status, but just to be clear, I mean, I think certainly when the British cases are under talking the about law, I mean, under the law of war, the common law of war, they were not prisoners of war. They would not qualify for prisoner of war status. They're so enemy combatants. Therefore, they they're would, engaging in warlike acts would be the crime of murder or the crime of assault and so on and so on. That's I understand your theory in one of these prosecutions. That, not, that would be our theory in those cases. I mean, cases, it is your theory. That, that would be our theory in those cases that we — and it is our theory in those cases we've chosen to prosecute right. in the military commissions. But there are other individuals with respect to whom we don't have the right kind of evidence in order to, to go with a full-blown military commission trial. But we still have the option that this Court recognized in Kieran and in Hamdi and it's — and, and — and, and most particularly in Kieran, not just to try people who are unlawful combatants for their unlawful combatancy, but also to hold them as we would hold anybody else who, who was captured as for, preventative For the detention. duration of hostilities, if you can show that they're enemies. If, well, I, I think if we can show that they, were, that they were enemy combatants, that's exactly right. And you are operating today under a broader concept, as I understand it, of enemy combatant. Then... I'm sorry, broader than what? Then, then was indeed the case, for example, uh, in, in our earlier litigation, let alone at the time of, of, of Kieran. Well, two things, Justice Souter. One thing is that with respect to the definition that the military commission uh, — I'm sorry, the C-certs the have yeah. applied, that is a broader definition. I would, I would quickly add, though, that with respect to the majority of the individuals, I mean, you have uh, — the, the, the petitioners from Bosnia that Mr. Waxman represents, but most of these people were seized in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so the situation's not that, that different. And obviously we would take the position that to the extent you have some concerns about the breadth of the definition, what this, what the plurality said in Hamdi in footnote one gets it exactly right. The way to deal with those concerns is in the adjudication of particular cases which can take place under the DTA or can take place in habeas. And again, I think the burden Well, how can it, I mean, and this again, I, I maybe should know the answer to this, but I don't. How could that be litigated under the DTA? Doesn't any proceeding under the DTA simply have to accept the statutory definition? No, it, it, it doesn't. Um, it's, I mean, it's a regulatory. You mean when it, oh, you're, you're saying if it gets to the Court of Appeals, they can raise a constitutional claim that the definition is broader than constitutionally could be enforced. Is that what you're saying? That would be okay. my point, Justice Souter. So I think that's available. I, I didn't understand that, that point when you were having your colloquy with Justice Breyer either. I, I thought you were going to answer to Justice Breyer that the Court of Appeals does have the right to determine whether to the extent the Constitution of the laws of the United States are applicable, whether such standards and procedures, this is CSRT, uh, are, uh, to make that determination are consistent with the Constitution. Yes, that, that's, pro that's provided uh, in, in the MCA. It absolutely is. I think Justice Breyer's hypothetical was cleverly crafted, though, to take that off the table. Cleverly crafted. I wanted to say that the people I'm thinking of are not challenging those procedures. What they say is you can have the best procedure in the world, and they're totally constitutional. We'll assume that. They're assuming it. They're not going to concede it. They're assuming it. And on that assumption, we still think that Congress President, the Supreme Court, under the law, cannot hold us for six years without either trying us, releasing us, or maybe confining us under some special statute involving preventive detention and danger which has not yet been enacted. 
But the statute. Their but, argument. The, but the statute talks about standards. Why can't that question, that Justice Breyer raised, be reached by the Court of Appeals and the uh, CSRT review hearings uh, when it, it determines the constitutional adequacy of the standards? Or am I missing something? Well, I, I think again that Justice Breyer's hypothetical, as I understood it, sort of assumed away the adequacy of all the standards and just said, putting all of that to one side, I have some other constitutional claim. And I'm just not so sure that habeas ever allowed you to sort of bring every claim that you possibly wanted to. And I think the, the, that what I, the way I read this Court's Hamdi decision is what was envisioned on a habeas case in a case where Army Regulation 190-8, which of course the plurality cited, was complied with, was in that case the habeas petition in court would take that as a starting point and that you wouldn't necessarily be able to say, hey, well, that was nice that we had that, that proceeding, but put that to one side, I have another claim. I don't think the court, even in habeas, would have envisioned that that well, claim just, could just, go just forward. Just one more question on that point. Uh, would the uh, Court of Appeals uh, in, in, under the MCA have the authority to question the constitutionality of the um, definition of non-combatant of unlawful combatant. Absolutely, Justice Kennedy. That would be available to them in the D.C. Circuit. Justice, um, General Kramer, I thought your answer to Justice Breyer, and maybe I'm missing something, would be that there is a third alternative that he didn't consider, namely that these are combatants picked up on the, on the battlefield and they may be retained, detained indefinitely without proving they committed a crime. That is your position, I think. That, that is our position. I, I mean, I, I want to give Justice Breyer's hypothetical its due. I mean, there, there, there might be claims that you could have brought, hypothetical claims that you could have brought uh, at, at some it's level, and the DTA does claim, narrow review some A particular prisoner says, I was kidnapped by people who were not the, the United States Army and sold for a bounty, and I, am, I just happened to be there when I got kidnapped. And then there's a genuine question of fact as to whether the fact that they, they may have been sold in that manner justifies detention, which is a different question entirely from whether they committed a, a, a violation of, of the law of war. Absolutely, Justice Stevens, but that question, of course, can be considered by the D.C. Circuit on review because they're specifically entitled to preponderance review in the D.C. Circuit. So that's a claim that they clearly could bring. They can also bring these statutory and constitutional claims to the standards and procedures, and they can make claims that the procedures that are set forth in the C-certs are not provided. And I think, again, if you compare that to what they would have had at the common law, let me and you just ask interrupt the again, I, and I know, I know your argument, but is, with respect to those claims, do you make the argument in your brief that some evidence is enough to refute that claim, or do, or do you say it's a preponderance standard? It's a preponderance standard, and that's what's set forth in the statute. And again, that's something where Congress specifically got involved in these C-certs in a way that I think is different from the Hamden case and Congress's involvement with the military commissions. In the military commission, I suppose any challenges to the adequacy of the standards or whatever are the sort of things that would be raised in the D.C. Circuit, and we don't know what that's going to look yet look like yet because the D.C. Circuit hasn't had an opportunity to rule on those. That's exactly right, Mr. Chief Justice, and that's why, as we say in the brief, I mean, there's a sense in which this is really a facial challenge. I mean, in order for them to prevail with the argument that DTA review is an inadequate substitute, they really have to say that it's inherently an inadequate substitute, that no matter kind of how many times the D.C. Circuit kind of issue, cuts the petitioners isn't a break. issue the fact that it's taken six years to have the issue resolved relevant? 
Well, I, I, I mean, I, you, you, they say they've been unlawfully detained for six years from the beginning. And isn't that delay relevant to the question whether they have provided such a wonderful set of procedures? Well, Justice, Justice Stevens, I think the delay is going to be relevant to whether or not courts should expedite hearings and the like. But I don't think it should cloud the basic constitutional question before this Court. And the procedures that are before us under the DTA and the MCA, of course, weren't available for the whole six-year period, were they? No, of course not. And I think it's worth recognizing that Congress legislated in this area not in year one and then six years have gone by. Congress legislated with these particular procedures and this level of review in years four and five. And the fact that they didn't immediately take effect, I think, is not an accident. It's a product of the fact that Congress in this area was providing unprecedented review. And, of course, when you do something unprecedented, new questions will arise. I think... And to go back to the, the beginning, my notion of your position was you never get to that question. Is the review of these procedures adequate in the D.C. Circuit? Because there is no authority, period, for the D.C. Circuit to engage in, to grant what was before us is the, our applications for rid of habeas corpus. You say that's out the door. They might bring some other proceedings. I thought that was your position. I think that is our position, Justice Ginsburg, but our position is they want to, they, they, they styled something, they filed something called a habeas petition. Congress subsequently has come in and said the way we're going to deal with this is we're going to remove jurisdiction for that habeas petition and we're going to allow you to file a DTA review provision, a DTA review petition. Now, their argument is that Congress can't force that choice on them because this is an inadequate substitute for habeas. The suspension clause applies in Guantanamo, and therefore the DTA is effectively unconstitutional to the extent it prevents us with proceeding with our habeas petition. Now, there are a variety of ways this Court could reject that claim. It seems to me that the most straightforward way, though, is to simply ask the question, if the level of review provided by the DTA in the DTA petition were provided by statute in 1789 or even 1941, for that matter, would it have been seen as a liberalization of the writ or a contraction and suspension of the writ? And I think it is very, very clear that if this statute had passed, if this kind of review was provided in 1789 or in 1941, it would have been greeted as a remarkable, remarkable liberalization of the writ as it had then been understood. And I think we are in this situation where these individuals, for the first time, are really allowed this kind of access to the court system. And when that happens, there are going to be difficult questions. We have difficult questions about what the record on review is. We have difficult questions about the extent to which classified information should come in. But all of those difficult questions are going to be waiting for us if we go back to the habeas courts, because the same kind of issue well, are- on, on that, uh, and you just mentioned remedy. Suppose, contrary to what you hope for, the court were to say that this is un- we have a minute or two. The, 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 the uh, suppose they were to say that this is an unconstitutional suspension of the writ and that the remedy here written in the statute is not, uh, adequate in respect to many claims that might be made. Uh, on that assumption, the habeas would lie. Now it's been six years and habeas is supposed to be speedy. And yet people have serious arguments anyway that they're being held for six years without uh, even having those arguments heard. Is there anything in your opinion that this Court could say by way of remedy 
that could get the D.C. Circuit or the others to decide this and the CSRT claims, there are 305 people, to do this quickly, within a period of months rather than six more years? And if so, what? I mean, obviously lower courts take anything this Court says very, very seriously. So if this Court makes it clear — Are we faced with this problem, and I don't want to put you right on the spot, what, what approximately would you say uh, in respect to this? Because it, it is a serious problem. Well, I mean, let me — if I could, I would answer it as to what this Court should say about what the D.C. Circuit should do on DTA review, because I just prefer to discuss the opinion where we win than the opinion where we lose. Um, as to that opinion, the Court the — court, the lower Court should be instructed to, with due cognizance for the fact that these individuals have been detained six years, and this is the process that's been provided in order to decide whether or not that continuing custody is lawful, they should — expedite this to the greatest extent possible. Well, how, how can we say that? Your position we have is we have no jurisdiction here. Yeah. If you win, we never get to these issues. Oh, with respect, if you win, if we win, you still write an opinion saying that we win, and that opinion can still say everything oh, you that mean, I've been. Oh, we just write an we, opinion and say, have a nice day, everybody. Here's here. here. <laughs> no, uh, we, we can't we, win without reversing uh, the, the, uh, the, the Court of Appeals. You can certainly affirm on alternative grounds, Justice Souter, and in the process you'd write an opinion. And if and we affirmed on alternative grounds, leaving the Court of Appeals reasoning as it stands, these interesting questions that you referred to will never arise. I don't think that's right, Justice Souter. There is active litigation going on in the D.C. Circuit over basically these questions and how this litigation is going to take place. And if this Court, in affirming, on begrudgingly affirming and directing the D.C. Circuit to move with all appropriate dispatch, that's going to be read just as carefully and taken just as seriously if it's an affirmance than if it's a vacator or a reversal. And that is, is that because the um — Withdrawal of jurisdiction uh, it doesn't apply to review of the proceedings in the D.C. Circuit that's provided under the statute? In other words, your argument that the habeas jurisdiction doesn't extend uh, doesn't reach the review of the adequacy of the DTA proceedings before that, the D.C. That's Circuit. exactly right. That's exactly right. And but why would they litigate that adequacy if they have determined in advance that substantively the individuals who are petitioning have absolutely no rights? They haven't decided that, Justice Souter. That might have been a problem back in Rasul. But now, whatever the answer to the question of whether the Constitution provides rights in Guantanamo, they have rights. They have a statutory right to preponderance review. They have a statutory right to have the military follow its own procedures. And they have lots of arguments in the lower courts trying to take advantage of those rights that they have. So there will be a meaningful procedure in the D.C. At the, at the end of the day, the only thing, as I understand it, that could possibly be adjudicated would be the question of formal adherence to procedure or not. There would never be an adjudication that ever went to the merits, because the merits issue, as I understand it, has already — I mean merits of, of release — have already been, been predetermined by the existing uh, uh, determination of the circuit in this case. Well, Justice Souter, I, I'm not sure that this Court — I mean, I, I understand your question, I believe, which is that the D.C. Circuit, I think, almost unavoidably reading this Court's Rasul decision and reading it as a statutory rather than a constitutional holding, has stuck with its circuit precedent and said that there aren't constitutional rights here. I don't — I mean, that would — that is going to be true unless this Court reverses it in habeas or in the DTA review. And it would seem particularly strange that if that's the real problem, that this Court would somehow decide, well, 
you know, we really think the DTA is an adequate substitute, but the only way we can correct this other mistake, in our view, that the D.C. Circuit is laboring under, is to rule against the government. But I mean, you were, you were arguing that the question of the adequacy of the substitution should, in fact, be litigated in a plenary fashion uh, in, in the Court of Appeals or the District Court, for that matter. No, I think that's the issue before this Court now. And this Court, for example — I thought you said a moment ago that there were all of these interesting questions that could be explored uh, if, if there was a remand. I'm sorry, Justice Souter. I, must, I may have and, misspoke. And the, I the, the, the interesting questions that I think are left on the remand, no matter what, are issues about whether or not, based on the Abraham Declaration, that the military followed their own procedures for assembling the record below, or whether the military followed its own procedures for providing exculpatory evidence. Those are all questions that aren't questions that require the answer to the question of whether Eisentrager is still good law. So you're talking, about, in effect, about evidentiary procedural questions. There, I mean, I, you're talking I, about taking the statute, Congress's statute, that set up this system with limited review in the D.C. Circuit and saying, that's it. The D.C. Circuit never got to that question because it said the action that these people are trying to bring, habeas, doesn't exist. The only thing that they have, the only remedy they have, is the one that Congress provided. And it seems to me the only question before us is whether there is jurisdiction in the Court of Appeals to decide that threshold issue. They tossed it out and it didn't reach, didn't say one word about the adequacy of the procedures, all of the things that you're talking about. I think that's right, Justice Ginsburg, but I want to be clear that my position is that an alternative ground for affirmance, which would allow this Court to address some of those questions, is that, there, that the D.C. Circuit was right to say that, they, that, that, that the DTA review that the habeas petition should be dismissed. The reason they were right is because the DTA is an adequate substitute for habeas. And that would be, we would be deciding that as a court of first view because they didn't decide that. They said, you don't need an adequate substitute for habeas because you have no right to habeas. I think that's a fair observation, but obviously this Court, in in the context, I mean, this has been fully briefed, and in the context of cases where the Court uses an alternative ground for affirmance, I mean, it it would not be a a novel situation. Your your suggested reason why they're right is quite different from the reason they actually gave. They did not reach the question of the adequacy of these procedures. I, I think that's a fair point, Justice Stevens, though I would say that really their reasoning encapsulates one of the three reasons so why on common law they, just, they were right. Yeah, but they did not reach this very important part of this whole case. And, of course, the, the substitute procedures here are near, not nearly the same as those in our prior cases where we sustained the 2255 and, and district here. Oh, that's right, Justice Stevens. But in, in fairness, in those situations, you were dealing with sort of substitutes for core habeas under situations where there was no dispute that there was a robust right to habeas at common law. And so here, you first deal with the situation of, all right, if the baseline is, as Judge Friendly suggests, 1789, is this an adequate substitute? And then even if somehow, and I don't know how, you get past that, then you, I think, still might ask the question that this Court asked in the Felker case, which is, you know, giving some deference to Congress's ability to shape the scope of the writ, is there a problem here? And I think we would point the Court to Felker. 
those, those later cases are not relevant because habeas corpus in the modern world is much broader than it was in 1789. That's part of your point. That is part of our yeah. point, and we would say, though, that — And the comparison you ask us to make is between what the habeas writ was in 1789, not the comparison with what the habeas writ would be today. We, we would start with that proposition, but I think this isn't a case where it's just 1789 versus today, because as I, I read this — I don't think you would seriously contend that the procedures set forth in the statute are equivalent to those that would be afforded under the habeas writ and t- under today's jurisdiction. It's a hard question for me to answer. At least you haven't argued that. Well, no, but, I mean, the, the question is, you know, in a different case, sure, there would be a different habeas. But we don't know sort of the answer as to what habeas looks like in the context of enemy combatants detained in a place like Guantanamo. And we would suggest, based on our best reading of Hamdi, that if there was habeas jurisdiction, if there was habeas jurisdiction now, the, the proceeding that would t- unfold would not be the plenary habeas that is envisioned by petitioners, but would be a much more narrowly circumscribed habeas. I would also point out that, again, it's not just — The only only point I mean, I think that's critical to your argument that the the substitute is adequate. I I think that's right. I would say, though, that our only baseline is not 1789, because as we read this Court's decision in Rasool, Rasool is based on the predicate that until 1973 and Braden's overruling of Aaron's, that the habeas statute would not have gone to Guantanamo. And unless this Court is, going to, is willing to say that there was an inchoate suspension clause violation until 1973 when Braden comes along, it seems like the tradition in this country, too, based on the immediate custodian rule and the territorial jurisdiction of the courts, was that habeas in Guantanamo is a novelty. It's 1973 at best. If I could finish with just bringing the Court's attention to one thing. This is in an amicus brief that is in support of us, the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation brief. But there's sufficiently little precedent for the Court to rely on. I want the Court to have this. The Shiver case, which is one of the prisoner of war cases, there is not — in, in the Rasul case, uh, Justice Stevens and the parties, we both cited to volume 97 of the English Reporter and the report of the case by Burrow. There is in the English reports an alternative report of that case from Kenyon. And the report of that case, which is 96 English reports, 1249, is actually longer on the law, shorter on the facts, but longer than on the law than the report uh, by Lord Burrow. So I just wanted the Court to have that available to them. Thank you, General Clement. Uh, Mr. Waxman, we'll give you five minutes. Thank you, Your Honor. I want to speak mostly about the adequacy of the substitute and particularly the question that you and Justice Kennedy asked about adjudication of the standard on remand. But just, you know, uh, to take first things first, I don't, I don't believe I've ever seen the government's, uh, the case Livers Ridge or Green cases cited by the government before, and I don't know what they say, but it is absolutely incorrect that DTA review of the SR, CSRTs is a liberalization of the traditional writ. As this, this court made, or the, the King's Bench made clear in Bushel's case, and all of the commentators, including Sharp, who both sides are citing as authoritative, here agree, in cases of executive detention where there wasn't a trial occurring, the court absolutely could, the prisoner could controvert the facts of the return. In Shiver and Spanish citizens, Spanish prisoners, there wasn't an original hearing because the court issued, sat as a Nisai Prius court and considered affidavits of the prisoners and third parties and determined on the basis of the affidavits that they were prisoners of war. But it is absolutely clear that the writ did extend 
to the question of, I am not a combatant. I am not a warrior, number one. And number two, it did go in non-criminal detentions to the underlying facts of the detention. And that goes to the point about the standard that Justice Kennedy asked and the Chief Justice asked. We agree that if and when the D.C. Circuit ever addresses the merits of these cases, and not only is there no CSR complete record on return in any case, but the government has suggested that they proceed five at a time. We're now two years running without a single one. But there's no doubt that the argument we're making in Roman numeral two of our brief, that the CSR, the Wolfowitz definition, is not authorized detention under the AUMF, which, as this Court in Hamdi said, incorporates long-established law of war principles and American traditions. We can raise that claim because they have to establish that the procedures and standards were consistent not only with the Constitution, but also with the laws of the United States. And the problem is is this. That is an argument that I gather both sides agree is available to you under the DTA before the D.C. Circuit. That is absolutely correct. But what what habeas at its core was, and we're talking, I'm happy to live in the world of 1789 now, is executive detention and not the more modern innovations where, well, certain procedures weren't constitutional or whatever, but you have no right to hold me. The facts won't allow you to hold me. The D.C. So Circuit what does that cannot. Tell you about the adequacy of the substitute. Because the D.C. Circuit, because the D.C. Circuit is reviewing a record that was adduced ex parte in camera with a presumption to boot that it is that the evidence is both accurate and complete, and the D.C. Circuit is will, has already said it will not hear any new evidence. And it must apply that same presumption that that evidence that was heard ex parte in camera with its own presumption is correct. And here's, uh, let me just give you an example of what difference this makes. You have the unredacted version of Judge Green's district court opinion. I don't. She discusses, she does address the adequacy of the substitute. And she addresses the case of two individuals. One is Mr. Eight Adir, who is my client, and you have, both in her opinion and our brief, this truly Kafkaesque colloquy at his hearing in which he is accused of associating with a known al-Qaeda operative, which he denies, but he can't be told the name. Mr. Kurnaz is the other petitioner who's discussed in her brief. He was a petitioner in this court, but he has since been released by the government because the fact that he had what the CSRTs won't give him, which is a lawyer. He was told two years after he was detained, he's a German permit resident, he was told at his CSRT, as many of these individuals were not, that he was being held because he associated with a known terrorist. And he was told the name. He was told that he associated with somebody called Selkuk Bilgin, who the government contended was a, a terrorist who was had blown himself up while Mr. Kurnaz was in detention May I simply finish this account? While he was in detention and in a suicide bombing, 
And all that Mr. Kurnaz could say at his CSRT, where he had no lawyer and had no access to information, was, I, I never had any reason to suspect he was a terrorist. Well, when the government, in the habeas proceedings, filed its factual return in Judge Green's court, it filed as its factual return the CSRT record. His counsel saw that accusation. Within 24 hours, his counsel had affidavits not only from the German prosecutor, but from the supposedly deceased Mr. Bilgen, who is a resident of Dresden, never involved in terrorism, and fully getting on with his life. That's what — and that evidence would not have been in, allowed in under DTA review. It wouldn't have been in in the CSRT, and it won't come in under DTA review, and that's why it's inadequate. Thank you, Mr. Waxman. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.